0: Uh, I wanted to become a Roman Catholic, but there were three things wrong. The first one was they told me I couldn't be Pope. (laughs) I mean, why start out if you know from the beginning you're not going to get to the top? The second was they told me if I did that, I'd have to wear those red shoes. And (laughs) And the third reason, my wife wasn't in favor of it. She wasn't in favor of my becoming a fiscal priest either, I might add. a couple of announcements to make. One is that you will be receiving in the mail this week our fall Christian education brochure, which is very nicely done. It is reader-friendly. And so I commend it to keeping by your uh, telephone or telephone book or parish directory or whatever else. And on page three it says how to use this booklet. And I will not be condescending or patronizing by reading to you uh, the page that tells you how to use the book. But I will remind you that the book is on its way, and please use it. It is inclusive of all those plans we now have for Christian education in this place this year. And so please uh, uh, put it at a prominent place and use it. Um, My lecture today begins with a a rather lengthy reading, but it's necessary in order to set the scene. And in case you missed this report, it's important that you have it uh, somewhere within the forefront of your consciousness for uh, your theological learning this year. It's a seminal piece. Some of you may have seen it, some of you may have read it, some of you may have heard about it. But I think it's one of the most important theological happenings. Uh, in America this year. And, uh, and so for those of you who haven't read it and didn't see it, I must read it to you and share it with you and then express to you why I think it is of seminal value in terms of theological reflection. Uh, I titled this lecture The Potato Thrower. In a minor league baseball game in William Port, uh, Williamsport, Pennsylvania the other night, the catcher threw a potato wildly in an apparent attempt to pick a runner off third base. When the base runner reached home plate, he was surprised, as was the umpire, that the catcher had a ball, a real ball, and tagged him out. The runner and the umpire were surprised for good reason. They thought that the thing thrown by the catcher and still being retrieved by the outfielders was the ball in the game. It turned out to be only the potato in the game. A white potato, as it were, which had been shaved cleanly, by the catcher Dave Bresnahan of the Williamsport Bills of Cleveland Indians team in the Class AA Eastern League. This is important. (laughs) It was a costly play for Bresnahan, who had sneaked the potato into his glove before the pitch. It cost his team a run cost him a $50 fine, and also cost him his job. The Indians' director of player development, Jeff Scott, released him right after the game. I checked the rule book a few days ago and found nothing in it that says you can't throw a potato in a game. (laughs) Brejnahan said yesterday by phone from Williamsport, which is absolutely true, the rule book also has no ruling against throwing a watermelon in a game (laughs) but the pitch Bresnahan had told the plate umpire that he had a problem with a string on his catcher's mitt he went back to the bench to get a new glove in the new glove was the now notorious white potato back behind the plate potato in glove Bresnahan gave the pitcher the signal then just before the ball was thrown Bresnahan deftly switched the potato to the bare hand, caught the ball in the glove, threw the potato intentionally wild to third base." Do you all realize <laughs> the importance of this event in the history of American theology? When I tagged the runner, said Brisnahan, the umpire looked stunned. He realized that the potato was in the outfield and then called time out. I don't know why he called time out, but he said that the runner was safe. I really thought they'd say, do it over like a net ball in tennis or get a laugh out of it. But the umpire didn't have any sense of humor about it at all. Maybe in a week he might. I... I think he ought. I was trying to show him up. I think he thought I was trying to show him up, but I wasn't. I was just trying to put some fun into the game. I mean, it's not like it was the seventh game of the World Series. We're in seventh place. (laughs) We're 26 games out of first place. It was the 137th game of a 140-game season. The ump said, you you can't do that! I said, why not? Where's the rule against it? He said, you just can't do it, that's all. I guess he was referring to his personal rule book. Brezhnehan makes a distinction between what he did and the recent outbreak of cork bats and scuffing of balls to get an edge. What I did was just to liven up the dull end of a season, he said. The Phillies, they thought it was funny. My teammates thought it was funny. They encouraged me to do it, even. The fans and management thought it was funny. You know, they're having a potato night at the ballpark. (laughs) Come to the ballpark with a potato and you get in for a buck. (laughs) Everybody thought it was funny except the umpire and the Cleveland Indian Manning. The prank or practical joke, admitted Scott of the Indians, was kind of funny, but I think the game, once you're on the field, is sacred. That's a quotation. You can't tamper with it. You can't tamper with the integrity of the game. It disrupted the flow, and I can't accept that. Bresnahan, 25 years old, holds a business degree from Grand Canyon College in Phoenix. This is his fourth year in the minor leagues. It appears with 149 batting average in 52 <laughs> games this season that this might be the end of the line for him.
1: <laughs>
0: it is a long way from the career of his great-uncle Roger Bresnahan, the Hall of Fame catcher for the Giants and the Cubs, among others, in the early years of this century. It was great-uncle Bresnahan who introduced shin cards in 1907 following a severe beaning is credited with being the first to experiment with a batting helmet. I guess ingenuity is in the Bresnahan bloodline. Says <laughs> so. All I knew about my great-uncle, said Dave Bresnahan, is that he was called the Duke of Tralee. That's in County Kerry, where my grandparents are from. And he used to catch Christy Matheson. Dave Bresnahan said he couldn't believe that he would be released for this. As for the fine, he said his teammates wanted to pay it for him what he did the next day was come to the park with a sack of 50 pounds of potatoes and a note pinned to it put it on the desk of his manager and his manager who had removed him from the game immediately after the incident the note on the potatoes read that he couldn't pay the fine, but that he hoped the manager would be satisfied with the potatoes the note concluded this spuds for you <laughs> whatever the result was, the day Bresnahan was on his way back home. Did he have any plans for the future? Sure, he said, I'm going to run for the governor of Idaho.
1: <laughs>
0: Surely you must see the metaphorical, if not allegorical, relevance of this happening in the American scene this year. You know, in a kind of ironic twist, when I was in Louisville in 1976 on Bicentennial Sunday, July 4th, uh, we came in uh, to the Star-Spangled Banner as a processional, appropriately. But I had this feeling in the midst of that ritual that as soon as the Star-Spangled Banner was over that I ought to turn uh, at the altar and say, Play ball. (laughs) (laughs) And I think the Cleveland Indians, when they start the game after the Star Spangled Banner ought to yell, work ball. Maybe they're right. Maybe that's true. And so let's quit saying play when we mean work and work when we mean play. Now, if this is metaphorical about life, now where are the potato throwers? Now where are the umpires? where is management and if we moved in a slight shift of shade from metaphor to allegory where would we put in the cosmic comedy who would be playing what places where would God be where would Jesus be where would you be who's the umpire who's the manager Who's the potato thrower? Interesting question. I spent a summer searching for the historical Jesus. In case any of you uh, wondering how you sign up for that tour, uh, don't sign up. Uh, The reason is because we've been looking for the historical Jesus uh, since the crucifixion. Most Particularly in the 19th century and 20th century, in a definitive way by Albert Schweitzer, who wrote a book on the search for the historical Jesus. I spent the month of July, a uh, month of August, uh, in England, studying <clears throat> the last few weeks at Oxford by a Orthodox New Testament theologian, looking at the parables, trying to take wheat and chaff to look at what is original in the sayings of Jesus, most particularly in the parabolic phase. What is it that we know that he said? Now what you must realize is the minute that the words came out of Jesus' mouth, somebody heard them, and in that, what John Croson calls that dark interval between the spoken and heard, things change immediately. And so what we have is the gospel according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we find in a parallel criticism of the sayings of Jesus that they're not always the same, and occasionally they're different, and sometimes they're moralized or interpreted by Matthew or by tradition. Realizing that the interval was not just from the spoken word of Jesus to Matthew Mark, Luke, and John's ear. Matter of fact, they may not have even been there because there was a period of probably 75 years from the time those words were spoken to when they were written down. So a lot of the wind that carries that sound is called tradition. And so they were traditionally interpreted from the beginning. So in searching for the historical Jesus, we're not sure what it is he said originally And so, I had been working with the parables out of a kind of theological and literary prejudice for a number of years, and I wanted uh, to go to the figurative mountaintop of uh, Oxfordian literary or biblical criticism and studied under John Fenton, who's one of the world-renowned biblical uh, scholars who's written commentaries on uh, Matthew and Mark, uh, completing one this year on John, in which he doesn't go at Uh, the literature with contemporary literary or psychological criticism, but with biblical scholarship. Now the point of all that is to say that I have, and increasingly more so, and now having done uh, some work on orthodox biblical criticism, I'm going to get at peace with looking at Scripture, particularly the parabolic sayings, Uh, with contemporary literary criticism uh, with the advent of psychology as an understanding of the sayings of Jesus and also give myself a large dose of permission to interpret them for myself now if any of you want permission to interpret the parables or the sayings of Jesus for yourself Uh, As a permission giver, I give you permission. But I also must say that it must be tested against a traditional understanding in order that we create attention. It can't mean anything, or it'll mean everything. And therefore, it'll mean nothing. So, we must test it against what it is the Church has said it means. But, all of this is moving rapidly, and I hope more interestingly, toward my point for the day. And that is... Uh, John Croson, the one I quoted earlier, wrote an interesting book in the 70s. Not a great book, but an interesting book entitled "Raid on the Articulate." Now, it is looking at the cosmic, comic eschatology in Scripture. A lot of you already already knew that, but <laughs> I wanted to remind you that it's looking at the cosmic, comic eschatology in Jesus' saying. It also takes a long look at Jorge Borges' work, uh, particularly uh, some of his short stories as contemporary examples of wisdom literature, not unlike the parabolic teaching of Jesus. Now, Crosan's point in this book is to say Perhaps we ought to begin to look at life, as life has been looked at in literature, particularly in drama, as comedy or tragedy. Now you know in the Greek plays that the personae, that is the two masks that were worn, uh, were either one of comedy or tragedy, with a smile or a frown, in simplistic terms. Now Croissant is beginning to say that we have a choice about how we look at life. Now, uh, he says that life is literary in the sense that life is full of both, comedy and tragedy. And in the narrow definition of literary criticism, he's not interested in deciding whether life is comedy or tragedy, for there is evidence for both. But he says the Christian, based on the Christian literature, now that is the cosmic eschatology. Eschatology means the study of last things. So, if we race in the Christian cosmology to the end of things, we see that for the Christians, the end is a comedy. It has a happy ending. Now, so for Christians, therefore, based on our own sacred literature, that we ought to have a comic, cosmic vision and begin to see life as comedy because as I have said before one of the geniuses of baptism is that it tells us the end of the story at the beginning we know everything's going to be okay for this child this child is a child of God an inheritor of the kingdom of God and already in eternity remember eternity begins at birth not death so this child of God from the beginning is child of God in the kingdom of God within the enveloping folds of the wings of mystery in eternity we know how this story is going to turn out now between beginning and end lots of tragedy and comedy and some catastrophe separating once again the definition of tragedy and catastrophe a tragic character creates his own downfall which is the story of most of us catastrophe uh, means that the character who is a victim of the tragedy, did not contribute to the tragedy. Catastrophic happening would be what the insurance agencies call acts of God. I don't.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> now, the point of this is to begin to see that two things are possible to view life as Christians. One is that life is comedy. It doesn't mean to say it doesn't have tragedy or catastrophe. It just means that we know how it ends for us. And therefore, to have a cosmic, comic vision ought to allow us to be a little more angelic in the sense, as you know, I'm fond of saying that angels fly because they take themselves lightly. (laughs) That the Christian who has the comic, cosmic vision Ought to be able to say, in the midst of the worst tragedy and trying to get some vision uh, through the tears and taste of salt, even in the midst of tragedy, uh, the Christian ought to be able, with his cosmic, comic eschatology, be able to say, it's not all right, but it's going to be okay. And that we ought to have in our own step, figuratively or literally, a kind of unparalleled bounce a sense uh, that it's play that life at its best is play because we know how it's going to turn out so what's gonna happen to you are you gonna die Is that the worst thing that can happen to you well uh, the the Christian comedy says no uh, you don't it just feels a lot like and it looks a lot like and on a human tragic criticism it is death but you thought it was the real thing and it was just a potato you see I mean the There's a surprise at the end. I mean, when Jesus died, it looked a lot like he was dead. As a matter of fact, in human terms, he was. Dead as a doornail. But, (laughs) he rose up, and when he did, he threw a potato. Potato. And we thought that we were in the ball game all along, but at the end, he rose up and he didn't have the ball after all, it was just a potato. Now, if we move to allegory, you can guess who I think the potato thrower is. mean, he threw them all along. Now, here was the Jewish community looking for the Messiah. They were in a terrible crisis. And that is that they were the chosen people But they were looking around saying, why in the world did you choose us? We've just soon not been chosen. Look what's happened to us, being the chosen people. And so what we want is a king like all these other kingdoms have so that we can have power. God said, you want a king? Yes, we want a king like all the other kingdoms. And he said, are you sure that you want a king like all the other kingdoms? We're absolutely convinced of it. And he said, okay, you'll be sorry. So I gave him a king. They divided the kingship, and the kingship got divided and conquered. And they were in a Babylonian captivity, wondering how you sing your songs in a strange land. And one of the songs that began to come out was the continuing prophetic word that, look, we tried to have a king like all the other kings, but we're going to get a king that's going to be different from any other king. And our king is going to rush in in the kingdom of God for us. And the kingdom of God will come on earth. And it will come in the form of a Messiah. And that Messiah will be our king, and we will be members of the kingdom. And so they waited for this great king to come in chariot and cloud, to usher in the chosen people, finally reigning as conquerors and leaders, and what they got was this guy riding on an ass. I mean, that was not the first potato he threw, but it was a memorable one.
1: <laughs>
0: Management wouldn't have it.
1: <laughs> You're
0: wondering where the church is where the priests are, where the Pharisees and Sadducees and priests and preachers and pastors are, you might look at management. They couldn't stand the fact that somebody would change the rules. And so they essentially terminate his contract. Jesus had a sense about him saying to them all along, you all don't understand, you're playing by a set of rules that I'm going to change. I'm going to turn it upside down. Remember the tree in the garden he said to them essentially? Well, there will be a new tree. The first tree you all climbed on, the second tree God's going to climb on. He's going to turn it upside down. He said the first talking to management the first will be last we're in last place but we're gonna be first he said when you come to dinner don't worry about who's sitting by the host take the last place he said if you're going to have a real banquet, go get the prostitutes and the beggars and invite them in. And he said, if you really want to know what the, how the game's played, if you really want to know what the game is like, watch the children. They know how to play. Unless you become like a child, you'll never enter this kingdom of God that you so much want to be a part of. And he said, you think you know how it's all going to turn out, but you don't. I've got a surprise for you. Now the comic vision for the Christian is one that's always looking for the ironic twist and the surprise. Jesus dies, and I would not diminish his death, and as I said very clearly, Jesus died, dead, in human terms. Like all human beings die. And when he died, uh, the last person that he grabbed before he died was a thief. And then, about the time that everybody thought they had it all figured out, and that, as management says, you can't change the rules. If you change the rules, we terminate your contract. He comes back and says, The rules have all been changed. Number one, you know the end before the beginning. And number two, that the most infinite are the most powerful. The foolish are the wise. The losers are the winners. And unless you learn to play, you'll never understand the kingdom of God. Now two things about children that we must remember when he said you must become as a child. Number one, uh, children are not as innocent as we would like to idealize them or romanticize them as we did in the 19th century kinds of stories of Alice in Wonderland or whatever. Uh, Children are right selfish, at least those that I know and have had any relationship with. (laughs) Uh, Children are not fully innocent. Uh, There is the serpent within them from the beginning is very wily. One of the reasons that Jesus chose children was not simply the kind of idealized, romanticized innocence of children, but it was because children absolutely have no power and they're totally dependent. Now, it's a very important thing to remember about children and why Jesus chose children. Unless we idealize children and, and at uh, 6.30 some evening when you have a 4-year-old or a 3-year-old or a 2-year-old or a 16-year-old, or a (laughs) 25-year-old child, and you say, I must become like this in order to enter the kingdom of (laughs)
1: heaven.
0: So let's not idealize or romanticize children, but let's do remember that, that they are absolutely powerless on their own and totally dependent. The other thing about them is they have a sense of play. Now let me end today by talking about play for just a moment and saying... That to play, though, we do need a context to play. I mean, you can't play without a specific amount of time. I mean, it needs to have a begin, beginning and an ending. All games have beginnings and ends. Then they have a, a kind of a way when you can tell that it's over. I mean, if you just played on, then it wouldn't be played. So you end. Nine innings, four quarters. It's a space of time. And it's played in a specific place. And that is to say, a context. A stadium, uh, a park. Uh, played in a place. So it's given a piece of time. It also has rules. I mean, there are clear rules. And that is that it begins and it ends. And this is a way you tell who wins and who loses. And these are the rules by which you play. Well, so, if we take that kind of loose and simple, if not simplistic, definition of the game, then life qualifies. And there's a beginning and an end. Clearly, we know when it, at least we have an idea, where well, we can assume that it begins with a drawn breath. And it ends when the breath is no longer drawn. I know about brain waves and all that, but this is a simple analogy, okay? (laughs) So it has a beginning and it has an end. It has a piece of time. We don't know what that is, but we know there is one, and we know what the average is, and we know that it doesn't go on forever. And it had rules, clear rules. And the rules are very important to the game. You've got to know the rules or you can't play. But you've got to be careful that you don't equate the rules with the game. Because the rules are always getting changed. You know? I mean, there was a time uh, when after every basket you had a jump ball. Did you know that? Yeah. That's changed. Yeah. The rules have changed. Uh, The rules are always changing in the game. about the time you kind of get comfortable with the rules, they, they change them a little bit. And so the rules have changed dramatically. So if we're going to define the game by the rules, we'll miss the game because the game is more than the rules. The rules are important, but they're not the game. Now, the other thing to remember is that the game is designed to be played, not worked. Now, one of the interesting things is that within the play, you have some work to do, but the purpose of the game is not the work. Now, if you are as quick as I am, which means
1: nothing, <laughs> then
0: I think you know what I'm talking about. One of the great jokes on humankind that I will now give credit to Borges for out of this book. So if anybody doesn't like it or is offended by it, it's from this book and I I think we ought to do something about it if we don't like it. (laughs) If you like it, then I was the one who Or he has this great short story in which there's this secret that everybody kind of knows, but you have to be initiated through a kind of rite in order to know the secret. And so there's great, been great speculation through the years by literary critics about, well, what was the secret? What is this a metaphor? What is a story metaphorically about? And all kinds of speculations through the literary community for years. And finally, somebody interviewed him and asked him, now, what was the secret? And he said, well, it was, it's the greatest secret of humankind and it's the one that little children are cut out of and they have to grow into. And it's the most overwhelming curiosity of children to know this secret. And they speculate about it and they ask questions about it, but when they find out, it is the greatest joke on humankind that you can imagine. Well, the curiosity peaked. He said, well, what is the secret? And he said, how we propagate. You mean that's... You mean that's how babies are born? Isn't it a wonderful comedic story? You mean that's how... You mean there is no story? (laughs) I mean, there's great corporate laughter when we decide, My mother and dad? (laughs) (laughs) You mean to tell me? (laughs) And we still laugh about it. Because it's play. Now, there need to be rules. But actually, life is game. And it is play. Not to say that you won't strike out or be thrown out and get hurt. But ultimately, we've been told that we are to win. No, we're to lose. Wait a minute. In the kingdom of God, those terms are irrelevant. So, from now on, when you're in the midst of the deep depression that is inevitable, I know about those, Uh, when, when you're in the midst of the tragedy which come to every human being, the tragedies come, the comedy vision doesn't mean that there's no tragedy, we just know that the story is a comedy, not a tragedy. That in each chapter and verse, there's always possibility of the tragedy, and it will happen. Maybe even the catastrophic, God forbid, but it will happen. But we know the end of the story. And so when we take ourselves so seriously that we get frozen in life that we can't play anymore, and it becomes a work, just remember the story of the guy who stood up and threw the potato. His name was Jesus. Amen. Amen.